uh, Psalm 80. If you'll please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 80. Hear God's word. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon, upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. We hear a lot in the Christian community of the need and desire for spiritual revival, revival of the church, revival of our nation. People dream of an age in which there is great spiritual sensitivity and devotion. And when people speak of the revival of the church, generally what is meant is a church where people are, we might say, on fire for the Lord. You are excited about spiritual things. You come to church eagerly and joyfully. The word of God is alive to you as you read it and study it and hear it preached. It takes on real meaning for your lives. What also happens during a revival is that many people are converted to the Lord. People in the church are Uh, recommitting themselves to the Lord and they're going out and evangelizing and people's lives are being changed and so the result is the church is vibrant and it's growing. That's on the level of the church and then there is talk about a revival of our nation that we would say would flow from a revival of our churches as churches carry out the great commission with vigor and as members live holy lives because of a deep love for the Lord, we would expect that culture itself would be changed. And as revived churches minister, entire local communities may very well be transformed. There may be a a, a growing public desire to follow God's law, to do things in, in biblical ways. And as communities are changed one after the other, counties and even states may be changed. And what is envisioned are the seeds of revival sweeping over our entire country, enabling our country to once again be able to 
call itself a Christian nation. If you uh, listen to Christian radio any time at all, you hear a lot about revival, and there's, of course, a lot of talk about the desire for revival. And you and I ought to be in agreement with those who desire revival. There's nothing, uh, when we're talking about revival, it's really nothing more than a desire for our spiritual lives to be sincere and, and vigorous. That's a very good thing. You and I should recognize that we can always be more diligent and more bold as Christ's disciples. And it's a fact that our church worship can become routine and lifeless, uh, just a matter of habit. And so we need to be revived as churches so that our worship remains lively and genuinely from the heart. Of course, the ultimate goal of revival is that many people would come to know Christ as Savior. You hear about this desire for revival, and even though you may agree with this desire, um, I think we, we generally do. There are a lot, though, of different ideas about how to bring about revival. And you've probably heard of various revivals. People refer to the revival of the Great Awakening or even of the Second Great Awakening. There's uh, recently the Asbury Revival. Um, as we hear of these revivals, we need to evaluate. We need to discern, are these real revivals? Um, I hope you're able to recognize that many of the modern ideas regarding revival are not biblical. And I think there are some really important principles here in Psalm 80 regarding the right perspective on revival. But first, let us consider some of the wrong ideas. For many, they fail to distinguish between spiritual excitement and emotional excitement. In other words, for many, the key to revival is to get people emotionally hyped up. And the thinking is that if we can get people excited about church, about religion, we have revival. And uh, there are two main ways that, uh, that people think that such excitement can be generated. There is, the first of all, the excitement that comes with being inspired and blown away by a talented music program in the church. As far as many are concerned, life is restored to the church through rip-roaring music that gets your toes tapping and your hips swaying. Lively music is often equated with lively spirituality. But whether we are talking about traditional choirs or professional-level soloists, whether a praise band or an orchestra, the goal for many is to use music to bring revival but ultimately, it's a matter really of manipulating emotions. And then there is the excitement that is generated through inspiring messages, messages that are geared to attract people. People equate growth um, just in the numbers of the church with revival. And so uh, there are often uh, messages that are, uh, that are attractive, and it's because they're man-centered. There's no serious confrontation of sin. Um, but instead a, a focus on, entirely on, on God's love and grace and, and the message that if you just do what God says and surrender to him and uh, give yourself to him, that you will be happy, you will be blessed, you will be fulfilled, you will be healed, so forth and so on. Talk about the prosperity gospel. And it's also thought that if you have a church life that's just filled with programs and activities, that's revival. And so to make church a fun place, an uplifting place, that's thought to be how we bring about revival. So the preached word is, 
is uh, substituted with things like drama. Sermons become shorter and shorter, the content less and less doctrinal. In many circles, uh, sermons are almost entirely um, inspiring stories and jokes, which have as their goal just to make people feel happy. And then there are numerous programs and activities which are geared to be interesting and fun for people of all ages, especially the youth. And as long as there's vigor, as long as there's interest, as long as there's growth in, in number, it's, this is all thought to be revival. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not against good and inspiring music. I believe our music should be lively. We should be emotionally involved in the worship of our God, and sermons should be interesting and uplifting and inspiring. Uh, church should be a place that you, you want to be. Um, and even we as a body... Uh, should be alive with activities that that please God and these things. So these things are all legitimate. They're good within reason. The problem is when these things are thought to be what revival is all about. The problem is when revival is equated with an emotional spiritual high. The problem is thought that is thought um, is when it is thought that we can then generate revival by generating emotions and just by doing things then revival becomes something that we can bring about through this or that tactic by using the latest program. Well, as we shall see from this psalm, Psalm 80, revival is something that only God can bring about. It's not something that we can bring about by creating a certain atmosphere. True revival is far different than the kind of revival that man concocts as he seeks to make the Christian religion fun and attractive and relevant. But true revival has to do with your relationship to God. True revival comes when sinners repent of their sins and humbly call upon God. In fact, that's one of the main ways in which you should evaluate a revival. Are people repenting of sin? If there's nothing of repentance, there's no revival. True revival comes through the means that God has appointed for our spiritual progress and growth. And what are those God-appointed means of grace? The preaching of the word, prayer, the sacraments, these are the tools of true revival. I want to have us consider this Psalm 80, this, this psalm before us this morning, under the theme of true revival based in great part upon this chorus that repeats um, that we first find in, in verse 3 where it says, Restore us, O God. Restore us. That's, that's the language of revival. And we want to first consider the need for true revival. We need to understand what it is that we need when we are in need of revival. And along these lines, we need to know what true revival is like. And second, let us consider the source of revival. Where does the power for revival come from? And then third, let's consider the way to revival. What must happen if there is to be revival in our lives and in our church and in our nation? How is that revival, how does it actually become a reality? We begin with the need, the need for revival. It's clear that the psalmist sees a need for revival among God's people. He pleads with God there in the second half of verse 18. Again, using language of revival, it says in the uh, ESV, give us life, or uh, other English translations will say straight out, revive us, uh, revive us, give us life, and we will call upon your name. And so the psalmist recognizes that the nation 
is in great spiritual need. They're far from the Lord. They are in need of spiritual restoration. And uh, the, psalm describes, the psalmist describes this need in this recurring chorus of verse 3, 7, and 19. Restore us, O God. Um, we notice that in verse 3, it's restore us, O God. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. There is this in, increasing um, reflection upon God and who he is. But the ultimate desire is that God would restore us. Let your face uh, shine that we may be saved. Psalmist and his people long to be restored to a relationship with uh, the psalmist says people long to be restored to a relationship with the Lord where they know his covenant blessings. As it is, they feel that God has turned his face away from them. And uh, for God to turn away uh, his face is an expression that speaks of God's judgment. For God to turn away his face, it speaks of alienation. It speaks of separation from God. And ultimately, if God completely turns his face away from us and, and does so for all eternity, that's the very essence of hell. In contrast to such judgment, Scripture describes a state of blessing as God turning his face toward us, causing his face to shine upon us. For God to look upon us in this way is a covenant expression that speaks of God's favor, of his fellowship and blessing. And it's this favor and the resulting enjoyment of God's covenant blessings that the psalmist once restored. And uh, we're led to, to ask, well, what is it really to be blessed? What is blessing? Is blessing having a lot of the things of this world? If that's what we think blessing is, that's really materialism. Is, is the goal, um, is, is blessing a life free of stress and trouble? No, really, ultimately, blessing is God's face shining on us. Speaks of a relationship with God, of knowing Him, Him, him uh, loving us in the covenant. There's no sin separating us from God. That's the true essence of blessing. Meanwhile, the psalmist describes their state of dire need. He says in verse 2 Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. The recurring chorus is a cry to God that they would be saved. We naturally wonder, well, what are they referring to? What are they wanting to be saved from? And in general, um, comment, uh, uh, commentators will say that this psalm is a plea for the deliverance of the northern kingdom sometime before its fall to the Assyrian armies in 721 B.C. And it, the evidence is that this psalm was written prior to the captivity because it refers in verse 2 specifically to the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. So clearly at the time of the psalm here, the, these tribes still existed. And of course, after the captivity, after the Assyrian uh, captivity, there was no Ephraim and Manasseh. And notice that the psalmist also mentions Benjamin, which joined itself with Judah in the southern kingdom. And so it makes sense that the psalm would also be Judah's prayer for God's deliverance because when Israel of the northern ten tribes was threatened and then attacked by Assyria, Judah, the people of Judah believed they were next. And uh, they were very scared. And one question that is difficult to answer is exactly when this psalm was written in relation to the Assyrian captivity, because some say it was written before, others that it was written while in the midst of being taken captive, and others would say it was written after the northern tribes 
had been taken and that this is essentially a psalm of Judah pleading for the restoration of the ten tribes. The psalmist does write as though something tragic is happening or has already taken place. For the psalmist is pleading for help now. Verses 4 and 6 are about Israel's present plight. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Verses 12 and 13 are a part of a section that describes Israel using the figure of a vine. In these verses, verses 12 and 13, make it clear that some form of destruction has already taken place. For the psalmist asks, Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. In verse 16, the psalmist is still thinking of Israel as a vine and says, They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. And so it's evident that there is some great struggle that is taking place at the time that the the psalmist writes. And this was not just any struggle. What made it particularly difficult for the psalmist and those in the nation who at least were spiritually sensitive is the knowledge that what was happening was God's judgment. It's one thing to be attacked by enemies and to see your nation threatened and destroyed, that's hard enough, but what's worse is knowing that this destruction is due to God's displeasure. The worst thing that can happen in all of life is for God to turn his face away and to deprive his people of the experience of his loving presence. The real issue for the psalmist really is the covenant. What is to come of God's covenant? For God had promised to Israel and Judah I will be your God and you will be my people. Have you ever felt as though God has left you? Have you ever come under his chastening hand? You knew that God was displeased with you. As a believer familiar with God's fellowship, you know that it is like death to have God turn his face away. Now, I'm not talking about true believers losing their salvation, losing their justification, Uh, those uh, uh, of you who have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ can know that you are justified, that you are forever saved, but you can still, uh, if you come under the chastening of God, feel like you have lost fellowship with God. Whenever we feel alienated from God and feel a need for restoration, a need for spiritual revival, a need for being restored, We need to deal with why it is that we are experiencing this separation from God. Um, There were certainly people in the nation of Israel who were truly separated from God. They were unbelievers within the nation, within just the the body uh, of the covenant. But there were also those who were experiencing separation from God just in the sense of a loss of a sense of fellowship. And in either case, the real problem, the real issue is sin. The reason why God had turned away from Israel was because of their sin. Israel had been warned again and again of their rebellion and of the consequences that would come upon them if they did not repent. And the people did not repent as a whole. They stubbornly persisted in going their own way. 
And it works the same way today. The reason why we in the church are so spiritually lethargic is because we have turned away from God. It's sin that separates us from God, that disrupts our fellowship. It's our lack of submission to God that accounts for his taking away from us the experience of his grace. And so any attempt at revival that, that, that fails to deal with our sin is going to be an exercise in futility. And yet that is exactly what many people do. They think that they can bring spiritual life to themselves, their church, their nation, by doing things that give the appearance of life. Worship services that are alive with noise and lively emotions. Churches that are alive with activities. But there's no revival except we repent of our sins. Humbly seek the favor of our God. There's no revival except we get right with God and understand that there is forgiveness. And we're seeking that forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us then to our second point this morning, which is to deal with the question of the source of true revival. Where does the power of this revival come from? Can we generate revival? Can talented musicians and a dynamic preacher create revival? Can you and I as individuals, can we together as a church, transform ourselves spiritually? I proclaim to you that the only source of revival is God. This is true because of what the Bible teaches about us. The Bible teaches that we are by nature dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead is the opposite of revived. The dead cannot revive the dead. It's only God who can revive the dead. But then what about those who are already saved? What about you and me as as Christians who have put our faith and trust in Christ and who have been clearly then made alive by Jesus Christ? We are principally new creatures in Christ. And yet, is it not true that even so, we can be spiritually lethargic and dull? And then the question is, can we make ourselves more alive? Can you and I bring spiritual revival to ourselves or to others? I believe that scripture is clear that any spiritual progress from beginning to end is due to God. It's the work of God. Spiritual life is God's work. Any interest that you and I have in spiritual things at all is because of the work of God in us. Any repentance is because God, through his Holy Spirit, is working in our hearts. Our psalm very clearly teaches that God is the source of all that that Israel needs, including spiritual revival. There are these two figures that are used in the psalm to describe Israel and its its relationship to God. The nation is, first of all, described as a flock of sheep with God as shepherd. Then also a vine, we've already been introduced to that, with God as the planter and caretaker. Both of these figures describe us as God's people, as weak, as as needy, as utterly dependent upon God. It's interesting to note that in the Psalter, the idea of God being Israel's shepherd occurs in Psalm 23, but then also here in Psalm 80, the only two places in the Psalter where Israel, the idea of God being Israel's shepherd is found. But of course, we can look outside of the Psalms and and many places in scripture um, refer to God as our shepherd. And the point of that figure is to bring out our need for God's loving care. Because sheep are weak, they are helpless creatures, depending upon the care of the shepherd. Verse 1 tells us that God led Joseph like a flock. 
Sheep go where the shepherd wants them to go. And yet we like to shepherd ourselves. We think that we know better than God how to run our lives. And just as it is so very foolish for the sheep to be headstrong and to wander off on its own, so it is foolish to think that we can live without God. When, for instance, a sheep encounters an enemy, a sheep has no natural defenses. Sheep need their shepherd to protect them. And this meant on a very practical level for Israel that if they are going to defeat the Assyrians, then God must give victory. And so the psalmist prays, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verses 14 and 15, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. So Israel is this vine, and beginning with verse 8, the point is being made that God planted this vine. God is the one who caused this vine to grow and to flourish. In fact, verse 8 goes back to the beginning of Israel's history as a nation. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. It was God who delivered Israel from the land of Egypt. It was God who planted them as a people in the land of Canaan. And when you make a garden spot for a plant, you, of course, uproot all of the existing plants in that spot. You go in and you you weed and you till the ground. And so it is that God pulled up the Canaanite nations. He prepared the land. He planted Israel in it. And under God's care, this plant flourished and spread over the entire land of Palestine. Notice verses 9 and 11. You cleared the, the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. From the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River, God's people grew into a mighty nation. What is the point? Is it not to point out that Israel was made into a nation by God? The point is that God is the one who made Israel what it is. Verse 15 says, the nation is a vineyard which God planted, and the son whom he made strong for himself. It was God who gave Israel strength as a nation. And since Israel was the Old Testament church, there's a principle here that applies to the church of all ages, and that is that the church is God's work. It's God who plants the church. It's God who sustains the church. Israel needed the sustaining power of God on two fronts. First of all, Israel needed God to sustain them with uh, this Assyrian captivity that was probably on the horizon. Only if God intervenes with his power will the people be saved. But second, and more importantly, that Israel needed God to solve the problem why they are being judged in the first place. Israel needs spiritual revival. Israel needs to repent and turn back to God. But if the people are to be restored to God spiritually, this is another instance when God must act. And so verses 17 and 18 are are key at this point. The psalmist pleads, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Well, who is this son of God's right hand, this son of man whom God had made strong for himself? Who is this man who in God's hand rests upon him, he brings about the spiritual revival of God's people. 
Now, some will say this is a reference to the current king and speaks of how if God will just bless and, and strengthen their king, he will be an instrument of revival for the people. Many others think that verse 17 could be a reference to the, the people themselves. Israel is called God's firstborn son in Exodus uh, 4.22 and seems to be as well in verse 15, even here in this psalm. Um, talking about the stock that God's right hand planted for the son whom you made strong for yourself, probably referring to Jacob, Israel. Um, John Calvin and some other respected exegetes take the position that through this entire psalm here, when it refers to the son or the, the, the man, the son of man, that this is all in reference to Israel. Um, but even though I prefer the next view, which I will explain here in a moment, the view that this is Israel still supports the biblical truth that God's sovereign hand has to be upon the people, that he has to be the one to give them strength if they are going to be revived. But I take the, the third view, the third interpretation, that the Son of Man of verse 17 is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I base this on the fact that it is Jesus, the Son of God, who is at God's right hand. To be at God's right hand means to rule with the honor and authority of God himself. And my study of scripture and this idea of being at God's right hand yields the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the one who rules at God's right hand. When the disciples sought to exalt themselves, they spoke of their desire to sit on Christ's left and right, and Jesus said those positions of honor were not for him to give. But notice that the disciples were not speaking of sitting at the right hand of the Father. And when Jesus judges the world, he will welcome believers to blessings on his right while assigning the wicked to the left. But again, this is not speaking of being at God's right hand. Jesus alone is worthy of that honor. Hebrews 1 verse 13 says that God has never said, even to any of the angels, sit at my right hand. This is a position for God's Son. And so when our psalm speaks of God's hand being upon the man of God's right hand, this is speaking of God's blessing and power being upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, not known at the time of the psalmist under that name, but he's talking about the Messiah, the Savior, that God would give his people, equipping him and enabling him to do the work that's needed for our salvation as further proof, our psalm refers to the Son of Man, which is also another title for the Lord Jesus. In fact, it's given to Jesus in Scripture 71 times. In 67 instances, this was the title Jesus gave himself. It was Jesus Christ upon whom the power of God rested in order that he might be our Savior. It was divine power that enabled Jesus to suffer the depths of hell without being consumed. It was divine power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And it was by the power of God that Jesus the man was able to live a life of perfect obedience. And our Savior had to be one of us in order to pay for our sin, but he also had to be endowed with power from on high in order to accomplish this work. And so in Christ we have both the Son of God and Son of Man. The people of God in the Old Testament understood that it would be through the Messiah, through this Savior, both divine and human, that they would receive spiritual blessings. The psalm lays out the glorious truth that through the Messiah comes the very power by which we are spiritually revived. 
Verse 18 tells us what is the result when the Son of Man is given, the very authority and power of God. Then we are blessed spiritually. And what is said to be the, spe- the specific result of his work, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. There's nothing here of our own ability to keep ourselves close to God, not even anything here of a command to revive ourselves or to be revived. Nothing here even of our own ability to call upon God's name. We are completely dependent upon the Son of Man to revive us. After he works, then we will call upon God. Only when the work of Jesus Christ is applied to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit are we kept from turning away from God. So then what is the significance of this for us? How ought this passage to be applied to our lives? Well, first of all, understand that revival is taking place when people are turning from sin and turning to God. Let's not substitute anything else for what is true revival. True revival is taking place when we are no longer turning away from God, but turning toward him, which means a forsaking of sin in our lives out of a love for him. But if we are to see our sin and to turn from it unto God, what we need is not emotion-stirring music um, and, and man-centered inspiration, but we need the gospel. What we need for true revival is the word of God applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We need to know our sin. We need to know of God's provision for sinners in Jesus Christ, for it is then that we will call upon God. In other words, knowing that God is the source of revival, the question now is, how is it that God leads people to repentance and to call upon him? Well, God uses the faithful preaching of his word. And along these lines, we are not just to sit back and wait for revival because only God can revive sinners. But if we want to grow spiritually, we, want, we, we have to make use of the means of grace that God has given us. So if we believe that God revives sinners, then the next question is how? And when we answer that by saying it's through his son, well, how does Jesus revive us? Well, it's through his word, as it's applied to our hearts through the Holy Spirit, through the means of grace, through all of the means of grace that have to do with Christ and his word to us. And so we have to make use of the means of grace. This is how God gives us spiritual blessings. This is how he brings about revival. He has told us how he revives us, how he sanctifies us, how he gives us new life. It's through his word. It's through prayer. It's through the sacraments. And so if we want to experience spiritual life, we need to focus on these things. And of course, the most obvious application of the truths of this passage would be our need to pray for revival. Do you want revival in your life, in the life of the church, in the life of our nation? Then we are to pray to God, right? If he is the one who alone can bring it about. It's God who revives sinners. And so we call upon him. It's God who changes hearts. And so we pray that God would apply the work of Jesus Christ to our lives and to other people's lives through his word and spirit. Then we will not turn back from God. And then we will call upon God's name, seeking from him the spiritual blessings that we need. And what are those spiritual blessings? A life free of cares and and troubles? No, we need forgiveness. We need to love God. We need to love the neighbor. We need joy, peace, 
the righteousness that Christ alone can give, the work of the Holy Spirit, restoring us to a life of fellowship with God on a daily basis. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we look to you as the source of revival. Lord, we recognize so many spiritual needs in our nation, in our church, in the churches of our land, in ourselves. Father, we fall short of your glory and how desperately we need to be restored. Lord, it's so easy for us to turn away from you into the paths of sin. It's so easy for us to lose sight of what true life is about, which is trusting and serving Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would revive us as individuals, giving us a greater love for you, a greater excitement for spiritual things, love for your word, um, that we would be people of prayer, that we would uh, make use of the sacraments of your church as a means of grace, of strengthening us in our faith. We pray, Lord, that we would be uh, wary of, of the various gimmicks and, and, and various ways in which um, revival is presented to us in our day and age as just a matter of excitement. Um, Father, give us true revival. May we be people of repentance. May our, our greatest desire be to be living in, in constant fellowship with you, turning from sin, serving you gratefully from the heart. So, uh, Father, we pray that we would also be instruments of revival in our communities, uh, bringing your word to others around us. And uh, we do pray for great spiritual change that you alone can give. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.